You're listening to the Renovation Student Ministry Podcast. For more information on RSM, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Simpsonville teaching pastor, Jason Thompson. And I would love for you guys to open that up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's going to be near the end of the Bible because the New Testament is much shorter than the Old Testament. But open it up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John chapter 2 this evening. We're going to be continuing to take up. I love that you guys are doing the book of John. It is by far my favorite book in the Bible. The stories are awesome. The theology is amazing. I love this book. So I was excited to hear that Gabe was going through it and that he was going to give me an opportunity to share with you tonight. But before I, I jump in, I, have, I want to ask you a question. I want to see how, how on top of things this audience is. Raise your hand. Tell me, somebody tell me, what, which of the Gospels, which of the four Gospels are the synoptic Gospels? Does anybody know that? Have you ever heard that word before, synoptic? Can anybody tell me which ones are? Come on, one person? Want to take a guess at one of them? All right. All right, that's a good guess because we're in the book of John. You would think it is part of Synoptic Gospels, but no. Yes, right there. What do you think? Luke is one of the Synoptic Gospels. What have we got? It is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I guess I'm not even going to try to tell, ask you guys what synoptic means. I'm just going to tell you because it's tricky. It's a, it's a word you don't hear very often in church, but it's important, all right? And so synoptic, well, you break down the stems. Syn, S-Y-N, actually means together, all right? And optic means see, all right? So you, they're seen together. Those three books are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar, all right, they, you kind of can see them as being lumped together because they tell a lot of the same stories. They had the same sermons. They're dealing with the same period of time in Jesus's life. And so it's interesting that there are four different gospels kind of summarizing Jesus's life. But John is the only gospel that's not part of the synoptic gospels. It is vastly different than the other three. It does not cover the same stories. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much is because we get brand new stories that you don't see in any of the other gospels in this one. And you're like, you might be thinking, but I feel like I've heard the temple clearing story in other gospels. That is true, but you heard about a different temple cleaning, all right? And so you're like, wait, did Jesus go in and throw over tables and, and, and just like just push over the money changers. Did he do that multiple times? I truly believe he did. And we're going to look at some of the details in that tonight. I love this story. I don't know what it says about me that this is one of my favorite stories about Jesus, that he's, you know, going in there and and showing righteous anger. But I love this story. It says a lot. And so we're going to start with verse 13 in chapter two, and we're going to read it together. Um, So just follow along with me. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found and drove all the and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, "Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market." His disciples remembered that it is written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." So I want you to picture this scene. This is, this is a wild scene. Now they've been seeing Jesus going from place to place, healing the sick, 
teaching the, the gospel and, the, and just this, this new message and, and just all these wonderful things. And he comes to Jerusalem, this big city, very important city, and he sits there and he sees that there's these people selling things in the temple of God, in, in the house of God. And he sees them exchanging money. He sees all these animals. And sometimes people miss this part of it. But he doesn't just lose his mind and just be out of control and start throwing things all over the place. But he actually, he sits down and he makes a whip, right? I could just see him there just fuming, but he's in, he's in control. And he sits down and he's just braiding cords together to make a whip so he can whip these animals out of his father's house. And so after he does it, he comes up and he just starts driving these animals out of the temple. He's like, get these out of here. And then he comes over to the money changers and he takes a table and he flips them up. He like wipes off the coins off the table and then flips the table so they can't put them back on. He's like, this is not for my father's house. This should not be done. Now, the question we should ask ourselves is why is Jesus getting so upset with what's going on? This was commonplace in the temple. They regularly sold stuff. And the reason they were selling stuff was because people came from long distances to make sacrifices. Back in this day, you could only make sacrifices to God at the temple that was in Jerusalem. So if you lived hundreds of miles away every year, at least once a year, some of, usually they would try to do it three times a year, they would come and travel a long distance and they would come and do their sacrifice. Well, you didn't want to have to bring animals that far and they might get stolen. So what they would do is they would bring their money with them. They would travel a long way. They would come to the temple and then they would buy animals that they could sacrifice. So why is Jesus so upset with this process? They're making it convenient for the people. Actually, they're not making it convenient for the people. They actually made it very difficult for the people. They would tell the people, you can only pay for these special animals with a special temple coin. So they would make them exchange their Roman money, that's what everyone would use, and they would have to get a special temple coin, a special Jewish coin. And what they would do is they would mark up the prices. They would really have charge a very high interest rate and be raking in the money at, at, to, and taking advantage of all these poor people trying to worship God. At the same time, they would also make these animals act like they were holy animals and special animals that everyone should be getting just these temple animals. And so they would kind of guilt the people into getting these animals and they would jack up the prices on these animals. And from the very get-go, this merchandising and this trying to make money and these, these animals just being in the marketplace like this and the money changers should have never been in God's house. And so for Jesus' sake, he's thinking they shouldn't be here in the first place because this is they're desecrating a holy spot. Plus, they're using their greed to take advantage of these people. And I am not going to let them make it more difficult for people to come and worship my father. And so this is the first point I want to draw from this. Our focus should be on worship, not profit. Our focus when we come to church should be worship, not profit. And this still applies today. It sh the church should not be a place where people are getting rich. 
and making money. There shouldn't be multi-million dollar pastors at a church. There shouldn't be people that are coming just for their own benefit, whether it's, it's a place to meet people. Maybe it's a place to, that you're, you're trying to get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I'm like, hey, I'm coming because I don't want to be single anymore, or I'm coming because I just want to meet people and have a community, or I, I just want to come and just be popular, or whatever it might be. The church is not a place where you focus on yourself. It's not for your own benefit. It's not for your own profit. And certainly, we shouldn't be trying to sell stuff to make a profit, all right? And so this is why Jesus is so upset with these kind of things. All right, so let's keep going, though. This says in verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Now, you may be asking, um, why are they asking him for a sign? I mean, okay, he turned over these things, he showed anger, but why are they asking for a sign? The way Jesus was talking, he was making it clear to everyone that he had authority. He had authority over the temple. He even said, this is my father's house. So he was basically making a claim that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of God, which is a very bold claim that could often get you killed. And so he's saying these things and they're like, prove to us that you're the Messiah. And I know Gabe has been teaching you about uh, subscripts and superscripts. And so I wanna go back real quickly to verse 17. At the very end of that, you might see a little letter. I think in your Bibles, there's a little letter G. And at the bottom, you'll see a reference and it is a reference to Psalm 69.9. And this was not lost on his disciples. I'm gonna go actually to Psalm 69.9. And this is a messianic prophecy. And it actually, it actually is that quote that is mentioned in John. So let me read it for you. I'm actually going to go a little bit earlier than verse 9, but it says this. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. And so this is a messianic prophecy, and David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually speaking for Jesus right now. This psalm is about Jesus, and it is about Jesus experiencing trials and tribulation. And he is speaking to his heavenly Father and saying, please don't let the scorn, the spit, the mocking, the, the mistreatment that I am getting, not be on you, let it be on me. And there will be times where Jesus does feel like a foreigner. He doesn't feel like he belongs in his hometown because they won't accept him. His own mother and brothers think he's crazy. They don't follow him for a season because they, they don't know what he's doing. They don't understand that exactly who he is because while he is the son of Mary, like he is also the son of God, the Messiah. And so this is, and then, but it's a prophecy about what he's gonna say and that he was gonna be consumed with zeal for the temple and then he fulfills it in John chapter two. All right, so again, the Jews then respond and say, what sign can you show to prove us your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So he's in the temple. They're asking Jesus for a sign. And he goes, I'll show you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll, and I'll build it up in three days. And they're looking around at this massive temple. And they're like, what is this, a joke? There is no way that you could restore this temple in three days. It took 46 years to build. And a, f- a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And at one time, all the, the stones from the temple were completely destroyed, except for the stones that were underground. And there's a place you can go in the capital city of Jerusalem, and you can go underground, and you can see the bottom level of the temple. And I, I can't even describe how massive these stones were. Um, they were probably from about this corner to this corner wide. And they were about as tall as from the floor to where my head is. And it was solid stone. They would go out to these big mountain ranges and they had this technique where they would drive in uh, nails in precise spots and they would haul out these humongous stones, sand them down and cart them into the city. And it was stone after stone after stone. That's why it took 46 years to create these massive stones to do this beautiful temple. And so they're like, that's impossible. But Jesus is talking about the true temple, which is his body. And it's the body that's going to be destroyed for our sake, for our sins, for our benefit. And then that is the temple that he was going to raise up. And once he raised it up, then all of our sins would be paid for and he'd be established as the Messiah. All right, so let me finish up the chapter and then we're going to come back and look at a couple different things. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. It must have been crazy to be Jesus. I really don't want the gift of reading minds. Like, I don't, I don't want to know what you guys are thinking, all right? Like, it's, it would be scary to kind of get in everybody's head and actually know what people are thinking. That would not be good for us. But Jesus had access to all knowledge. He knew all things. And I do believe he limited um, what he actually, he, I don't think he looked in people's minds all the time. He knew exactly what he needed to know whenever he needed to know it. He's perfect and he, he was holy and he was God. But there were, so here are people praising him, going, oh, this guy's great. This guy's doing amazing things. He's speaking with authority. We love his sermons. We love his miracles. We love that he gives us, you know, free stuff. Like this guy is awesome. But in his mind, because he has all this knowledge, he knows what's in their heart. And he knows they're only in it for their benefit. He knows he, they don't really care about him in a relationship with him. And he knows, too, the people that will betray him, like Judas. They know, too, the people that will turn away at future teachings. Some of the people in this crowd that praised him here were the same ones that said crucify him later. And he knew that about these people. And so that's why it says he didn't trust them. Right. I'm actually going to skip to my, my third point, come back to my second point. But here's, here's another, the next point I want to share with you is Christ is our cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone. Now, the, the, the religious leaders did not understand what Jesus was talking about. It was just like blew, blew their minds, didn't know. All right. 
he was talking about his body and he was talking about it raising from the dead, but, but God works on so many different levels. We just cannot understand just how deep he is. And another level that he was working on is that he was also gonna raise another temple and that temple is the church. The temple is the body of believers, you and I, the brothers and sisters in Christ. He is gonna be that cornerstone for the church. And so one of the things that he is talking about that he will raise up after his death I believe he's also talking about how he's gonna raise up the church of which he will be the cornerstone. And we get a little hint of this with a couple different passages. I'm gonna show them to you just very briefly. One is in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verses four and five. And it says this. This is Peter talking about Jesus. And it says this. As you come to him, meaning Jesus, the living stone." rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are living stones. We are the stones that are supposed to build the church When we're not part of the church, we're not fulfilling what we've been called to do, our purpose in this life. We are living stones that are supposed to be stacked on top of Jesus's word and Jesus himself. And if you haven't ever been told what a cornerstone is, a cornerstone is that perfect stone. It is the perfect stone to start the building process. It's right at the foundation and it shapes the rest of the wall and it makes sure to keep it straight. And if we stay right on top of Jesus, and if we make him our foundation and him alone our foundation, then we will remain on the straight and narrow path that we're supposed to be, and that wall will be strong, it'll be straight, and it'll be a powerful building and church for God. All right. And he is also, when he's speaking about the three days, why three days is significant, we know that he rose from the dead in three days, but this is actually fulfilling another prophecy, which I think is pretty cool in the book of Hosea. So I'm gonna show it to you very quickly. And I'm gonna read it from the beginning of chapter six. And this is Israel being unrepentant. Israel scattered across the nations because they've just disobeyed God over and over again. But God gives them a prophecy that he will redeem them at one point and he will reestablish the temple. He'll reestablish the nation and his people. And it says this, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So here it is to talk about a call to repentance. And it says, on the third day, he will make it right. On the third day, we will be restored. And because of what Jesus did for us on the third day, rising from the dead after paying for our sins on the cross, that is why we can have a whole house, a healthy church and a church body. And so there's a lot of cool things going on in John chapter two. But I wanna leave you with one big takeaway from this. And so this is the point that I really want to rest in and talk about for a little bit. And it's this, we need righteous anger. We need righteous anger. 
Now, we don't need the wrong kind of anger. I'm not talking about the kind of anger when you're in the car and you're frustrated that slow people in front of you will not go at the green light. That's not the kind of anger that we need. That's the kind of anger I usually have, but that's not the kind of anger we need. And we're not talking about when your team really stinks and gets destroyed by a much worse team like half in the air at night with Clemson. Uh, sorry, Jeff, I had to show you under the All right. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, what happened? The crowd turned quickly. Like, hey, that was unrighteous anger that you had that night, Clemson fans. I know that because I like Clemson too, and I was not happy that night. I was like, what are you guys doing? All right. We're not talking about the things that infuriate us that are not righteous, okay? We get angry all the time, and, and lots of times, most of the time, when we get angry, we allow that anger to turn to sin. And a lot of times, we have no right to be angry in the first place because we're already in a sinful state of mind, all right? But anger is not sin. You can have a righteous anger, you can have an anger that is actually given by God and, and fueled by the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. This is the kind of anger that we need to embrace. So we need to cut off the bad kind of anger, getting angry for no reason and, 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 and losing control of our temper. If you're doing it the right way and you're getting angry about the right things and, the, and, and the, for the right reasons and you're being led by the Spirit, then you can get angry the right way and stay in control and not flip your lid. You can sometimes get angry about the right reasons, about the right, actually, at Furman. And um, I was playing with a bunch of friends, and I had a girlfriend at the time and that I, I was really into. And out of nowhere, like a water balloon almost smacked one of my friends. And so it just hit the court and exploded, and we're like, where did that come from? And sure enough, we saw, like, somebody, like, 200 yards away, they were far away, but they were using those like heavy duty slingshots to pull the balloons. Those things hurt. I don't know if you've ever been hit by those, but it feels like you just got smacked by like uh, 10,000 bees. I mean, it, it's like, it stings, right? And so we're like, hey, get out of here. And we kind of like chase them off a little bit, but they're really far away. And, uh, and we thought they were going to stop, but we we're playing again. And then sure enough, this water balloon came. We did not see it until it hit, but it hit my girlfriend's calf and it was like she got shot and she immediately went down and started screaming out the first thing I did was go to make sure she was okay the second thing I did was I took off in a dead sprint after those guys and like and I think they were loading the next balloon they didn't see what, what that they didn't see me sprinting for some reason because they were hidden behind trees and so I got all the way there and I was like I was ready to start swinging I, I, I grabbed the slingshot I ripped it out of their hands I towered over them and I started like using some language you should never use all right and so this is this is this is long before my pastor days okay all right so um, and so I, and, and all my friends ran after me and it was starting to be like like a it was going to be a brawl but these guys like backed off because they could see how angry I was but so I was right to do something about that. I was right to be concerned about her. I was right to be, be that they were in the wrong and they needed to be stopped. But I took it to a point where I was gonna take it to another level with profanity and with like throwing blows. And at that point, I had already stopped the conflict and it went too far, right? So it's, you have to be careful that you're doing the right thing at the right time to the right extent, this is why it's really important that when you, you use righteous anger, that you're led by the Spirit, not led by your feelings. It's very important. But righteous anger can be extremely useful. 
Righteous anger will motivate us to do the right thing. I'll tell you one of the things that, that riled me up when I was a teacher is that I hated when students would get into fights, especially when they were one-sided fights. Like, I was the kind of teacher that was not cool with just watching it play out and then as every, the damage was already done and then picking up the pieces. And so I had a tendency that every time I saw a fight, I would step in. There was one time where it was a little bit out of control, though. Um, I, there were two opposing gang members in this middle school I was at, and they were both 16-year-old eighth graders. So they had, they had failed a couple times, okay? One was 6'5", 280 pounds. The other one was probably the most muscular eighth grader I had ever seen in my life. He wasn't tall, but he was like just ripped, right? One always wore a red shirt. The other one always wore a blue shirt. You can make of that what you will. But they, they like started having like a little gang, little talk, and they got in a fight and immediately they cleared out a space about 20 feet around them because they were throwing blows that everyone was scared of. And so that even the teachers were like, ah, I'm a little hesitant about getting in this one. But we crowded, I crowded around trying to look for an opportunity to get in here. And, and sure enough, finally, some of the blows were starting to go a little bit slower. I reached in and grabbed the, the smaller kid, the muscle-bound one, and I, and I turned him this way so he wouldn't get hit again, and I rushed him this way while five other teachers went around the big guy and tried to calm him down. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is settled, right? And so all I hear, though, behind me is, look out! And, and so at the last second, I see this, this just look like a bull rushing like, at me, and I was like, Oh, crap. And so I like at the last second, I rolled out of the way and this guy swung right around my head and just barely missed and it started contacting and started fighting this guy again. So then I piled on top of both of them and tried to pin them down so they couldn't hit each other very easily. And so and we called the cops. And so but in the process, it like knocked over a bunch of kids. Some of the teachers got a little bit bruised up. It was like an epic battle. And what came out of that is like they were saying, OK, you know, maybe we have too much liability as teachers to break up fights. And they said, At, from this point on, you're not allowed to get involved in any way. But that always really bothered me. And so, I, I, it, and I have to be honest, like, I, it, was like, it was like a general policy. It was like, that's what the, their preferred method was. But I was like, I cannot do that in good conscience. And so there were many, many times after that where I would have, have experience where someone was just getting pummeled. Uh, there was one time where I was substitute teaching and you know how it goes. You know the fight is happening because of the roar that you hear down the hall, right? Like, it's just like, there's just like loud commotion. You're like, it's a fight. And so everyone rushes there. When I would rush there, I would go there to break it up. And so one time it happened in the bathroom and there were two people just going at it. But I opened that door and one kid was way bigger than the other one and was just pummeling the other kid. And meanwhile, other kids are like taking their, they had their phones out. They're taking pictures. They're laughing. They're like, look at this. Oh, I immediately got in between and stopped it because my heart hurts when I see someone else getting hurt. And I feel, I, as believers, we shouldn't be looking at something that is wrong and thinking, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. We shouldn't be like the world. When we see people being hurt, being bullied, being talked bad about, our hearts should hurt and we should want to do something about it. 
Now, I am not telling you to go get in between two heavy-hitting people that are fighting, okay? That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is to be led by the Lord. And, what, and, there, and I know you might be thinking, I, I'm, just, I'm just a high schooler. I'm just a middle schooler. What can I do to change all the harms in the world? Yeah, I get that you probably can't change homelessness for good, or you can't stop the sex traffic industry, and you can't do a lot of these big picture things with wars or anything like that. But every day, you see things that are wrong. You see people mistreating other people. You see bullying. You see, you see fights. You see all kinds of people being mean-spirited towards other people. And what my challenge is for you tonight is do something about it. Even if the only thing that you are doing is when you see something wrong, you start praying for it immediately, that's a big something. God will honor that. God answers prayers. But I also want you to be the person that if someone is, is being mean to another person, to say something. Now, don't be mean to the person that's being mean to another person, but be like, hey, man, that's not cool. Go easy on them. And you might get some backlash. You might get somebody to talk to you and say, hey, who are you to talk about this? Are you their friend or whatever? But be strong enough to take some of that flack if you're doing the right thing. If you see someone who's an outcast that no one sits with at lunch, consider sitting with them at lunch. Take your friends over and be friends with them. Change that person's entire life by being kind. There are so many opportunities for us to speak up, to step out, and to do something with a godly, righteous anger because that you see injustice in this world. And one of the biggest injustices of this world is that the world is constantly spewing lies, that Satan is constantly lying to us, saying that we're worthless, saying that we can't do anything better, saying that we're not good enough the way we are, and that we should try to change ourselves. They're constantly speaking lies. You can start speaking the truth. You can tell someone that they're beautiful. You can tell someone that they're smart. You can tell someone that they're worth it. You can make a difference with your words. And it's because of the way that you act and the way that you love somebody and show that you care about people, they will want what you have. And you can make a difference by sharing the gospel. If there is... One big injustice, it's that there are a lot of people going to hell. There are a lot of people going towards a path away from the peace and joy and love of God and going down a path of the world which is just devastatingly dangerous and, and brokenness. Help steer someone away from that to the right path. Bring them to church. Help them see the love of Christ. So my big challenge tonight is to, to spend some time in prayer. Think about what you can do with your own abilities, your own talents, your own circle of influence. What can you do to stop some of the injustices that you see around us? Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to these young people. There is so much talent and ability in this room. There is so much potential for them to shake up their schools to shake up this church, 
to shake up this community. Help them to see that they have the ability to make a difference. And I pray that they will take tonight's teaching seriously. I pray that they will spend some time with you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will lead them to something that they're passionate about. Some kind of injustice that's in their circle of influence that they can help speak into. That they can start praying for. That they can start making actions to stop the injustices that they see around them. I pray that you give them a special time of discussion in their small groups. I pray a blessing over them in general as they go through the rest of this school work week. Uh, school week. I pray that you will give them discernment and guidance with their friend influences. I pray that they will make a difference wherever they go. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Renovation Student Ministries podcast. Find out more about following Jesus and building his kingdom at therenovation.church.